Good morning, everybody. Happy Easter to you again. And uh, if you're new with us today, thanks for being here. My name is Dan Halleck, and I'm the lead pastor here. And, and uh, just glad that you came to worship the Lord with us today as we celebrate his death and resurrection. Uh, Jesus was born a little over 2,000 years ago uh, in this town called Bethlehem. Most of you probably know that, but it's located, it's a real town. It's located in modern-day Palestine. Today there's about 25,000 people who live there. And uh, the Bible says that everything about Jesus' birth was miraculous. Jesus' mother was a virgin uh, when she became pregnant with him, which of course didn't make Mary's boyfriend Joseph very happy uh, since they had not been together yet. But some angels appeared separately to Mary and to Joseph and assured them that this was no ordinary baby that Mary was carrying. This was God himself who had come from heaven to earth to rescue the world from sin. And when Jesus was born, his, uh, his parents were uh, approached by another angel, uh, and the angel told them to name their baby Jesus because it means God saves. His name foreshadowed his mission. And the Bible testifies in several different places that Jesus was a perfect child. He never rebelled against his parents. He never did anything wrong at all, which I'm sure made his siblings very happy. Um, Jesus never sinned, okay? And so you'll be hearing that word more today. Sin means failing to obey God, failing to obey your creator. And either we sin by not doing what God tells us to do in his word, the Bible, or we sin by doing what God tells us not to do. We read in Scripture that through his teenage years and through his 20s, Jesus was tempted like you and I have been, yet he still never sinned. And on the contrary, he actually obeyed all of God's laws perfectly that are written in Scripture. And he's the only person who's ever done that because only Jesus was 100% human and 100% God. And Jesus pursued that sinless life on earth because he came to earth to die as a perfect eternal sacrifice on your behalf and on my behalf. Hebrews 9.22 says that uh, without the shedding of blood, which means death, without bloodshed, there is no forgiveness of sin. But uh, we also learn all throughout the scripture that uh, animal sacrifices cannot make us right with God because we're too sinful to be forgiven by the death of animals and God is too holy to be appeased by the deaths of doves and sheep. And so Jesus came from heaven to be our perfect sacrifice so that we could be forgiven by God once and for all and having a living friendship with our creator who loves us. So in his early 30s, Jesus started his public ministry, which lasted about three years. And Jesus cast demons out of people, which demonstrated his power over the spiritual world. Jesus proved that he was God by performing many miracles, like walking on water and healing sick people and healing people blind from birth and healing people who'd been paralyzed for 38 years, and even by bringing back people from the dead. And he traveled all over Palestine, what we know today is Palestine, and he taught his followers. He taught his followers massive crowds at times and sometimes just a few at a time, but he taught them 
the purpose of life. He taught them how we were created to live. And he taught us how we can be at peace with God. And Jesus, in short, said, if you want to be at peace with God, then you must trust in me. You got to take your eyes off of this world, this place where you're living. You got to take your eyes off of it and fix your eyes on me. You've got to come to believe that all of the drugs and alcohol and sex and money and power and pornography and hatred and hurt in your heart cannot satisfy your soul. In fact, if you look to those things to satisfy you, then you will be filling your heart with those things for the rest of your life because they'll never fill you. And you will live and die an empty person. That's what Jesus said. He says, what you really need is living water that will quench your thirsty soul. He says, I am the living water. Trust in me. Trust in the power of my death and of my resurrection. And I will live in you and you will live in me forever. And you will be satisfied And so after three years of preaching and teaching and doing miracles, uh, a group of Jewish religious leaders became jealous of Jesus and they wanted to kill Jesus. And they paid off one of Jesus' disciples named Judas and they arrested Jesus at night when nobody else was looking. And in the middle of the night, the Jewish court convened illegally and condemned Jesus as a blasphemer. And then they took Jesus to the Roman governor because the Jews at that time were occupied by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire basically owned the whole world around uh, the Mediterranean Sea. And so they took Jesus to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and they, they urged Pilate to crucify Jesus. And the Jews told Pilate that Jesus was a rebel. He's a political threat to Rome. You've got to get rid of this guy. And so Pilate brought Jesus into his private quarters to interrogate him one-on-one. And after several conversations, Pilate decided that Jesus was not guilty of any wrongdoing. But at the same time, Pilate was so afraid of the Jewish leaders that he decided to have Jesus beaten to the point where he was nearly dead. And so Roman soldiers flogged Jesus with whips until they were so exhausted that they had no more energy to flog him anymore. But the Jews were still not satisfied. They demanded that that he finished the job. Jesus must be crucified. And because Pilate was scared of them, he gave in. He caved into their demands and he handed Jesus over to be crucified. In the Roman Empire, crucifixion was a horrible way they had invented to torture and die, um, to torture and, and kill uh, criminals. It was, it was actually received for only the worst criminals in the whole empire. Um, rebels, serial killers, terrorists. These are the people who were crucified. Uh, But before Jesus was crucified, as he was with Pontius Pilate, he said, you would have no power over me unless it was given to you from above. And when the disciples tried to kill one of the officers arresting Jesus, Jesus told him, his disciple, put down your sword. He said, don't you know, I can have 10,000 angels right now if I just say the word by my side. So even though it actually appeared that the Romans and Jews were in control of Jesus, he was the one actually in control. He was using them to fulfill his mission to die for the sin of the world. 
Now, the, the reason we know all of this about Jesus is because there were eyewitnesses who wrote all of this down in the part of the Bible that's called the New Testament. The Old Testament was part of the Bible before Jesus' life, and the New Testament was written after Jesus' life. And one of the most fascinating accounts uh, we have that was written by one of Jesus' closest disciples named John um, is the Gospel of John. And John was probably just a teenager. Not when he wrote this, but when he witnessed all this. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at what John wrote about Jesus' death and resurrection. And because we have limited time together, I have to assume two things. First of all, I have to assume that most of you believe that the Bible is a historically reliable text. And I realize that not everybody in this world does, and probably not everybody in this room does. But uh, in my own experience, in the conversations I've had with most people who who doubt the reliability of the Bible, most people I've met have not actually ever studied the reliability of the Bible. They've heard their friends say stuff, they've maybe watched a silly one minute video on YouTube, but they've never actually taken the time to study, why do I believe that this scripture is true? They've not made an effort to study why the Bible is not only reliable, but actually it is the most reliable ancient text that humanity has. If you throw out the Bible, you throw out all of ancient history because we have more copies of the Bible than any other ancient text. I mean, by far, by thousands. It's incredible. And so if you're interested in learning more about the historical reliability of the Bible, I'm not gonna get into that this morning, but feel free to shoot me an email. Just, uh, I think there should be one in the back of your bulletin, just info at cedarhome.org. And you don't have to meet with me, but I could, if you, unless you want to, but, but uh, I could shoot you some articles or books or movies that you could watch that would be helpful. So I have to start with that, and then the second assumption I, I have to make today is that most of you believe in the spiritual world. Uh, most of you believe that there is more that exists in the universe than what can be seen. And I realize not all of you may believe that, but statistically 95% of you believe that. And so I'm not going to spend time this morning arguing for the existence of God. And so as we read the disciple John's eyewitness account of Jesus' death and resurrection, I hope to answer four questions. First, did Jesus really die? Second, why does that matter to me? Third, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Fourth, why does that matter to me? Okay. Before we do that, let's ask God to help us. Dear Lord, uh, you are God. We are not. You tell us in your Bible that even the air in our lungs belongs to you. You created us because you love us and because you want to be in our lives and you want us to enjoy you forever. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would soften our hearts right now, that you would be here present in a powerful way and teach us through your word. Please encourage your church today. Draw to yourself with power everyone you want to rescue today. Keep Satan and his demons away from us. In this place, Lord, may your name be glorified and lifted high. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so first question. Did Jesus really die? Well, we've been studying this at our church for the past month or so, and so I'm just going to briefly list, just from John's gospel alone, uh, three reasons why we know that Jesus really died. First, John writes in chapter 19, verse 1, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And Jesus was likely flogged twice on that Friday that he died. 
there were three different levels of, of floggings that the Romans did. Uh, the first flogging that he had was the lightest one, which was basically to punish him for causing problems for the Jews and the Romans. And then the second flogging that he had was the worst that they had. Uh, and that was simply, they knew they were going to crucify him, and so they beat the tar out of him, uh, the life out of him, before they sent him to the cross. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, Jesus was most likely uh, tied to a post and stripped of his clothing and whipped by Roman soldiers to the point of near death. That was when they knew it was done, when they were tired. So they just took turns beating him. And it was, it was not uncommon for criminals, obviously, to die from the flogging alone uh, as the torturers literally tore open their bodies. And Jesus, though, did not die by the flogging, but he was not far from death just at that point, most likely. And the second reason we know that Jesus really died is because after Jesus hung on the cross for several hours, the Roman executioners declared him dead. In John 19, 31 to 35, John writes, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, which was a fulfillment of prophecy, by the way. But one of the soldiers pierced his side, which was fulfillment of prophecy, with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And then John is saying this about himself. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. John's very clear in his gospel. The reason why he writes is so that you would believe him. When the Romans wanted to expedite death of those being crucified, they would break the legs of the criminals on the crosses because that would make it impossible for the criminals to push up against the cross with their feet and lift up their chest to breathe. And so if your legs were broken, then your lungs would collapse and you would die of asphyxiation. Well, as John testifies, the, the Roman soldiers broke the legs of the criminals on the crosses next to Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they could see that he was already dead, so there was no point in breaking his legs, but they didn't stop at that. Just to verify that he was dead, the soldiers used one of their spears to stab Jesus in the side. And Jesus didn't make a sound. His body did not move. It says he just bled blood and water. And doctors today believe that this indicated that Jesus experienced what is called pericardial effusion, uh, which was an accumulation of watery fluid uh, around his heart and around his lungs that was a result of all the trauma and blood loss that he'd already experienced. His kidneys were failing. And when the soldiers stabbed him in the side with a spear, they likely pierced into that lung and, and sack, that heart sack, which would have released this unusual amount of water along with the blood. Needless to say, the Roman ex executioners, the professionals, declared Jesus dead. And third, we know that Jesus really died because of all of the eyewitnesses who wrote about it in the Bible and also outside of the Bible. There were ancient prophets like uh, David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and uh, 
Micah, who, who all predicted in exact detail how Jesus the Messiah would be killed. If you've never read Psalm 22, you need to read that today. It was written a thousand years before Jesus ever walked on earth, and it's an eyewitness account from his perspective of what it's like to die on the cross. David was prophesying as the Lord spoke through him. Other witnesses, the the disciple John who wrote this gospel testifies that he was standing next to Jesus' mother Mary at the foot of the cross when Jesus died. The disciples uh, and, and future authors of the New Testament of the Bible all testified that Jesus suffered and died. This was the core message of the gospel or good news of Jesus in the first century. And all of this is in addition to the outside witnesses of the Bible who testified to Jesus' death, which isn't as interesting, but if you don't trust the Bible, then that might interest you. But contemporaries of Jesus, like the Pharisee Josephus and Tacitus and Pliny the Younger, those are the other ancient texts that we still have in existence, though not nearly as many as the Bible. They all testified that Jesus died. And in short, we have many witnesses that testified that Jesus truly died. So if you ever hear somebody try to argue that Jesus faked his death, it's ridiculous. It, history, does, there's nothing to back that up historically. Jesus was flogged. Think about who he's dealing with, the Romans. <laughs> Jesus was flogged to the point of near death. He was hung on a cross by Roman executioners who stabbed him in the side to verify it. And there are many ancient witnesses who testify about that. And then Jesus's body was placed in a new tomb and it was wrapped in very heavy Middle Eastern burial garments. And his tomb was then closed by Roman soldiers. It says that they sealed the tomb with the official seal of Rome. Okay, Pilate was serious about this, so he sealed it. And then he commanded up to 16 Roman soldiers to guard that tomb day and night for the next three days so that nobody could steal Jesus' body or say that his body was gone. Jesus truly died. And so that leads us to the second question. Why does that matter to me? Well, Jesus' death matters to you because when he was on the cross, he became the sin of everyone who trusts in him. And when Jesus died on the cross, the sin that he became died too. And you need that to happen for you. Jesus became your sin and put your sin to death because you cannot get rid of your sin by yourself. And your sin is what separates you from God. And your sin against God and my sin against God condemns us. It condemns us to a hopeless life on earth and to an eternity of suffering that Jesus talked about a lot and that he called hell. Jesus said that in hell, people will suffer God's wrath towards sin because he's a just God. And that people in hell will suffer forever because during their lives on earth, they refused God's forgiveness. They refused to be forgiven by the precious sacrifice of God's only son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, though, that the other places where souls go when they leave the body is to God in heaven to enjoy friendship and freedom and life with God forever. And at his last supper, just 
about 18 hours before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed to God the Father and told him, I want my followers to be with me where I'm going, God. Dad, I want, I want them to be with us where we're, going, where we're going to be at in heaven. That's God praying to God. God gets what he wants. But this is the problem. People who are ingrained with sin cannot enter God's presence in heaven because God's too pure to have us around. The only way to enter the Father's presence in heaven is to have Jesus remove your sin, your guilt, your shame, your past from you. And the way to do that is not by trying to earn God's love, trying to be a good person. The way that you do that is by saying, God, I can't do anything but I trust you and what you did for me on the cross. That's called faith. And it's through faith alone that anyone will ever be saved. And you must only give or receive this gift of God's grace. It's called grace. You cannot earn it. It's just a gift God gives you because he loves you, because he's merciful. And so you receive this gift of God's grace through faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross and in his resurrection. And this is what Jesus also says. He's a truth teller and he does it with love and gentleness. But he says this, if you do not trust in my death on the cross to forgive you, to purify you, to remove your guilt before God, then your sin remains on your head and the wrath of God remains on you. And it will remain on you for eternity because you have rejected him. You've rejected his grace and his mercy. And that means in this life, you have no Holy Spirit to help you. You have no true hope for your life on earth or in eternity. The best you have is self-help books and happy thinking, which are not grounded in reality. It's just how much can I muster my, my own self to feel good and try to change the circumstances around me? That doesn't work. Jesus tells you what is true. You need him. Pastor John Piper writes that Jesus does not say this. Jesus does not say, trust me, or you will get in trouble. Instead, Jesus says, trust me, because you are in trouble. You're in danger. You need me, and I have a way to get you out. Turn to Jesus today if you haven't. Tell him you need his forgiveness. He is real. He's with you. You can talk to him like a friend. Tell him that you need his forgiveness that he purchased for you on the cross and believe that he is God. And he says this, I will come into your life today. The Holy Spirit will come into your heart to live. He is the guarantee of your salvation. And he will guide you. His name, the the, the Holy Spirit is called the comforter, the minister. He will comfort you all the rest of your days on earth. He will apply all the promises of God in scripture to you. He will intercede on your behalf in heaven and you will enjoy life forever after this life on earth with Jesus. That's why Jesus' death matters to you. Let's get to the third question. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Let's begin by reading John's account in John 20, one to 18. Now on the first day of the week, which is Sunday morning, by the way, which is why churches meet on Sunday morning, because that's when Jesus rose from the dead. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early 
while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. And both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, the reason they stooped is because the tomb was only three or four feet tall, the the door. They only need to get in, get that body in and out, okay? They stooped in. um, Verse 5, stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. That's John. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, John, who had reached to the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. And this passage is full of great stuff, but for our purposes this morning, I'm only going to point out three reasons from this account only. We could go to all sorts of other books in the Bible, but we're just looking at John's account. Why we know that Jesus rose from the dead. First, we know that Jesus rose from the dead because the stone was rolled away from the tomb. Okay. The entrance to the tomb, like we said, was probably only four feet high, which is why they had to stoop down to look into it. And one of the reasons why the entrance was short is because after you place the dead body in the tomb, you then had to close the tomb by rolling a massive stone in front of the entrance. And this stone would have been either a very large square stone, or if you were richer, it would have been a round stone, and it would have weighed at least 400 pounds, so it took several strong men to do this. They didn't have excavators to move these things, okay? And so you had several strong guys. So who might have rolled away the stone and taken Jesus' body? Well, it could have been the Roman soldiers who were guarding the tomb, 
But it makes no sense that it would be them. The soldiers were given strict orders to guard Jesus' tomb, and their superior Pontius Pilate was so serious about it, remember, that he had placed the seal of Rome on the tomb. And further, we know from Roman history that if those soldiers had failed to guard Jesus' tomb, then Pilate most certainly would have punished them and put them to death. Look at what Pilate did to Jesus. And he was innocent. And we know this is the way the Roman Empire worked. When the Philippian jailer in Acts 16 thought that he lost all of his uh, prisoners, what was his instinct? I'm going to kill myself because I'm going to die anyway. The Romans... Empire was merciless, and the Roman soldiers here would have no compelling reason at all. They did not care about Jesus or the Jews, and they had no reason for uh, any financial motivation to roll away the stone, uh, the tomb of Jesus, because uh, the stone covering the tomb of Jesus, because their lives were on the line. Okay, so people have asked, well, could it have been the Jews who opened the tomb? Well, that wouldn't make sense because the Jews were the ones who requested to have Jesus' body locked up and guarded. The last thing the Jews wanted was any rumor to circulate that Jesus had risen from the dead like he said he would. And think about this. Even if they had stolen his body, they would have been the ones to show it to everybody to show that Jesus was still dead. But much to the chagrin of the Romans and the Jews, they were never able to provide Jesus' body. Could the disciples have opened the tomb? Well, if you think about it, it really makes no sense because think about the Garden of Gethsemane. As As soon as the temple officers and the Roman guards showed up to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples were out of there. Right? The disciples were scared to death of the Roman soldiers. These these guys. These trained soldiers would have slaughtered the disciples in a second. The disciples were fishermen and tax collectors. They weren't fighters. They weren't going to overpower the soldiers and break the tomb open, okay? Even according to the disciples themselves, these guys were cowardly. They were hiding in their own houses, they said, with the doors locked because they didn't want the Romans to hunt them down and kill them. And in addition to that, the disciples had no motivation to do this. They had no, it says that the disciples, in, in John 19, 9 here, it says the disciples didn't even, under, even understand that Jesus would rise from the dead, even though he told them on several occasions. And when Mary Magdalene and the women were going early to, to see the tomb, they weren't going to see if Jesus had risen from the dead. They were going to prepare, finish preparing his body because they ran out of time because the Sabbath hit. So they were going to finish the preparations of the body. They didn't understand that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. And so the Romans and the Jews and the disciples did not open the tomb. And that's because Jesus did. Jesus is God. He rose from the dead. He rolled the stone open himself. And the second reason we know that Jesus really rose from the dead is because his burial linens were left in the tomb. If a grave robber had broken into the tomb of Jesus and stolen his body, then why in the world would he take the time to take Jesus' burial linens off his body? That makes no sense. And it would not have been an easy task. We know that the spices and aloes alone that covered Jesus' body weighed 75 pounds. And when you combine that with the burial linens, it would have been foolishness to try to unwrap his body And in addition to that, why would any grave robber want to leave the burial garments behind? All that linen was expensive. That would be what they were after. 
Linens were in high demand. Garments in ancient times were much harder to come by than today. That's why uh, in John chapter 19, when Jesus was crucified, the Roman soldiers divided his clothes among themselves, and they rolled dice to see who would get his bloody tunic. Not because they wanted a memento, but because garments were worth money. And on top of all of this, John writes that the burial linens were lying there in the empty tomb, and next to the linens, was the face cloth that had been on Jesus' head, and it was folded and put to the side. What Roman soldier or grave robber would have unrolled Jesus' body, left the expensive burial garments behind, and then taken the time to fold Jesus' face cloth and set it nicely to the side? It makes no sense. The reason why Jesus' linen cloths were still in the tomb is because Jesus took them off himself. His spirit re-entered his body. His heartbeat started beating again. He came back to life. He took off the burial linens. He folded his face cloth and put it next to the other linens. And then he left it all in the tomb because Jesus doesn't need material wealth. He is God. He owns everything. Acts 17 says that Jesus is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all of us life and breath and everything. So Jesus left his burial linens in the tomb. And the third reason why we know that Jesus rose from the dead is again because of all the prophetic witnesses and the contemporary witnesses of Jesus to his resurrection. Okay. I already told you about King David's prophecy a thousand years ago, uh, a thousand years before his, Jesus' life. Well, David had another one. He said that a thousand years before Jesus ever lived on earth, David said that God the Father would not allow the body of his Holy One to undergo decay. That means that God's Holy One had to rise from the dead and stay alive. And one of the most powerful prophecies of the resurrection was Jesus' own prophecy. We read in Mark 8.31 that during Jesus' public ministry, he began to teach them that the Son of Man, which was a title for the Messiah, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And when he was talking to other people about his death, he said that I will be lifted up. He would be lifted up on the cross. And after rising from the dead, Jesus appeared to hundreds of people in his resurrected body. And in today's passage, just look at a few of those. John the disciple enters the empty tomb of Jesus. He sees the burial linens lying there. He witnesses all the evidence. And he says at that point, he believed. That was enough evidence for him. He believed that Jesus rose from the dead before he even encountered Jesus. And all the gospel writers agree that Mary Magdalene was the first person to see Jesus back from the dead. And she recognized his voice in the garden when he called her name. And she wanted to cling to him. She wanted to hold on to him and not let him go this time. But Jesus told her to go tell everybody that she had seen him back from the dead. I remember I had a roommate in college who, I, I didn't know much, I didn't know as much about the Bible back then, but one of the reasons he didn't trust the Bible is he, you know, he said, how come you don't, what if just there were a bunch of guys who wanted to make the world a better place, and so they just wrote these gospels at the same time, and, 
and, you know, 2,000 years. And I didn't have a good argument because I didn't know. But there's all sorts of arguments for it. If you were an ancient fiction writer, there's one, I'll just point one out in this passage. And if you were going to make up a story of Jesus' resurrection, then you would not have had Mary Magdalene be one of the first and primary witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. Because in that culture, Mary was a woman. And her testimony would have been of little value. And it would not have even been permissible in a court of law. If you were going to make up the story of Jesus, you probably would have had Jesus appear to a Roman citizen or somebody of importance like Pontius Pilate. Somebody whose testimony all the people would believe. But John didn't make up the story of Jesus' resurrection just for kicks and giggles, okay? The reason why he said that Mary Magdalene was the first person to encounter the resurrected Jesus, because that's the way it happened. He wasn't thinking about how he could change his story to make it more credible to non-believers. John was just reporting the facts. And as we will see next Sunday, people's lives are totally changed when they encounter the resurrected Jesus Christ. They are never the same They are radically different. And seeing Jesus back from the dead turns these cowardly disciples into all of a sudden, on the spot, this band of courageous men who are willing to give up all their belongings, even their lives, to tell the whole world that Jesus died and he really rose again. And according to historic tradition, all of the disciples were martyred for following Jesus and not one of them ever recanted their faith in the resurrection. The resurrected Jesus would even change the life of a guy whose mission it was to kill all Christians. That guy's name was Paul. And after meeting the resurrected Jesus, he would do a total 180 on the spot and then spend the rest of his life traveling to all the world and telling them he was wrong about Jesus and he would suffer for the gospel and he testified that Jesus truly rose from the dead. And then Paul would go on to write the majority of the New Testament of the Bible. So, so many ancient witnesses testify with their words and with their lives that Jesus rose from the dead. And when you combine these testimonies with the prophecies, hundreds of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, and the testimony of the angels at the tomb that Sunday morning, and when you combine it with the stone that was rolled away from the tomb and the empty tomb itself and the burial linens left in the tomb and the face cloth of Jesus folded up, you can safely conclude from John's gospel alone that Jesus truly rose from the dead. Which brings us to our fourth and final question. Why does the resurrection of Jesus matter to me? Let me give you three reasons why it matters. First, because you are gonna die That's why it matters. It doesn't matter how successful you are or how many possessions you have acquired or what kind of life you've lived. You are going to die someday and you don't get to take any of that stuff with you. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that, what happens next? Comes judgment. Your life on earth is going to end someday. And it could be today. And then you're going to be judged by God. And God is going to judge you by your works and see if you lived a perfect life on earth and if you deserve to go to heaven because you were perfect. Or if you committed even one sin against him and deserve to go to hell because you rebelled against him. What do you think he's going to determine? 
I mean, can't you look at your life right now and determine where you should be when you die? I can. Well, on that day when you meet God, you can either mock God by trying to convince him that you're not as bad as you appear, or you can mock God by trying to convince him that he is not as holy as he appears and his requirements are too high. But your other option is to say, God, I'm guilty. I have sinned against you. I do not deserve to be with you. But when I was on earth and I heard the good news about Jesus' death and resurrection, I believed. I trusted you. And God, you know me because your Holy Spirit's in me and you're the one who put the Spirit in me. And you're the one who gave me the faith to believe that gospel. And so I claim no righteousness on my own, but I point to you, the judge, Jesus, because you died and you rose again for me. That's where your hope is. You're going to die today. Not today, sorry. I hope you're not. <laughs> I hope I'm not a prophet. You're going to die someday. But if you do meet your, meet your maker today, what that means is you need to know that you have freedom from that fear right now. God doesn't want you to live in fear of him you, in, in, in an unhealthy way. You need to start eternal life with your creator and savior, Jesus, today, this morning, right now. Because this world cannot satisfy you. Give it up. Give up on it and instead... Put your chips on Jesus. Trust in Jesus entirely. He says that if you confess with your mouth that he is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And this is why it matters, because when he saves you, he unites you to himself. That's what John 15 is about. He abides in you. He is in you, and you are in him. So what that means is if you're united to Jesus, you don't have to be afraid of death anymore because on the cross, Jesus killed the power of death for you and in his resurrection, he proved that he's victorious over death. Nobody who is in Jesus dies. And you don't need to be afraid of Satan and his demons anymore because they are real, but they don't have any power over you anymore. You're filled with Jesus and covered by his blood. You are not a slave to the spiritual world of, of Satan and his demons anymore. You're a slave to Jesus. You are a slave to freedom in Christ. You don't have to be afraid of hell if you're in Jesus because Jesus already suffered God's wrath for you when he died on the cross and he didn't leave any of God's wrath left for you to suffer. You're gonna die, but if you, res if you trust in the resurrection of Jesus, then death, what it is now, it used to be your worst enemy. It used to be your biggest fear. But now it is just the door that you walk through to experience an eternity with God that will be greater than your wildest dreams. That is what death is now because of Jesus. The second reason why Jesus' resurrection makes a, a difference to you is because if you trust in Jesus, he says he will clothe you in his perfect righteousness. You get to wear Jesus' robe of righteousness. And so when God, the Father, looks in eternity at one of his own, he doesn't see a rebel. He doesn't see you, a sinner, a terrible person. He doesn't even see a forgiven sinner. God looks at you and he sees the perfection of his son. 
If you are, this is what Paul said. He said, the resurrection means that you've been justified in God's sight. You're not guilty. God has already declared you not guilty of any wrongdoing. You can head into death knowing that, that Jesus already justified you in the sight of God, that you are not totally deserving of eternal life because you have the righteousness of Christ. Because when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, what happened? The whole world condemned him, right? But God the Father, whose judgment matters most, was well pleased with his son. And he declared his son not guilty. Even after he became sin, he was guilty. He died for our sin. He paid the price. And the Father said, he is not guilty anymore. And I'm raising him back. And if you're connected to Jesus, what that means is that you are forgiven You are justified in God's sight and you have his divine righteous robe for eternity that you get to wear if you belong to Jesus. And third, and the final reason why Jesus' resurrection matters to you is because Jesus' resurrection requires you to make a judgment about him. Either you will trust in him or you will turn away. Think about the disciple John. When he entered the tomb, he saw Jesus' burial linen lying there. He, he immediately believed. It wasn't time to say, well, I'm not sure. I'm going to wait around and see if more evidence pops up, and then maybe I'll be convinced. Okay. Isn't it the same way today? I hear people say, man, if you could just show me a little more evidence, then I think I'll be ready to believe. Just don't feel right comfortable to make that decision yet. The death and resurrection of Jesus isn't enough for them. And it was the same way in Jesus' day. It wasn't enough for them either. That's why faith is a gift of God. And think about Mary Magdalene. She heard Jesus' voice and she knew it was him. And she cried out, Rabboni, which means teacher in Aramaic. All it took was one word, the sound of his voice, and she believed. And she didn't want to let go. She wanted to stay by his side forever. Christians, this is the other thing. This isn't about just getting into heaven. That's not what we're talking about. Are you like Mary Do you want to cling on to Jesus and follow him? Do you want to follow Jesus? Not just get what he has, but do you want Jesus? The reason why God put air in your lungs today, the reason why he allowed you to get here safely today is so that you can decide this day whether you believe and trust in the Lord as your God or whether you will reject his sacrifice and reject the power of his resurrection. You, none of us know how much time we have left. And I know this, I'm only in my 30s and I've already seen enough tragedy and death in this world to know that life is fragile and life is fleeting and I don't want to waste my life. And I have sinfully tasted of the things of this world and they cannot satisfy my soul. Only Jesus can satisfy me. Listen to the Apostle Paul who pleads with you that his testimony is true. He says, he who saw as born witness, his testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you also may believe. And listen to Jesus who says in John 11, 25 to 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's what Jesus says. Jesus asks you today, do you believe this? Do you believe this good news about his death and resurrection? Will you pray to him this morning and trust in him with your life and with your soul, whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time? Is he the object of your affection and of your trust? It is the most important decision you will ever make.
If you want to talk to someone about following Jesus or about being baptized to declare your faith in Jesus, you can talk to me up front after the service or you can talk to somebody at the information table at the lobby or make a note on the connection card in your bulletin and we'll get back to you. But uh, if you live in the Stanwood area, we would love for you to come back next week. Our plan is to gather again at the same time and worship the Lord together and thank him for his death and resurrection and study the next passage in John's gospel where Jesus supernaturally appears to his disciples inside of their locked house. Thank you guys so much for being here today. Please give Jesus your attention. Let's pray. Lord, you're so good to us, and this day is all about you, God. You died and you rose again to glorify the Father and to save your church. Lord, we admit we can do nothing to earn your love or affection. We cannot earn your approval. We simply must obey you through faith. We trust you, God. And I pray, Lord, for those here who don't know you, God, that you would help them now, that you would make them born again, that they would trust in you, Jesus. And I pray for your church that we would be encouraged and celebrate this union that we have with you today, God. Thank you for being so generous and for sharing your victory with us. We do not deserve it. It's hard to believe, it's just unbelievable, God, that that we are righteous in your sight. But whenever we struggle to believe that, help us to remember that our view of the cross and resurrection is too little. And our view of your glory is too little. You are an awesome God, you do what you want, and you are gracious and merciful, and we ought to worship you and give you our very lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.